going to continue this series tonight uh, on a triune God. I'll tell you what, let's flip open to Matthew 6. We're going to use this, our text tonight. We said a little different, these evening sermons during this series, less expositional, more kind of using these texts to give us our feet some sure ground and then kind of looking at the doctrine together. Tonight what I want to do is I want to look at God the Father, God the Father. So we looked at the knowability of God that first week. We looked at the simplicity of God that second week. So in that, looking at the simplicity of God, we looked at the oneness of God. And now what I want to do this week is look at God the Father, and then uh, in two weeks we'll look at God the Son, and then we'll look at God the Spirit. And then what I want to do is work out some of the implications of all this uh, in the last couple of weeks that we have in this series to look at. What does it actually mean for us practically that God is Trinity and creation, salvation, redemption, consummation? But tonight, Matthew 6, why don't we start there in verse 7, and then we'll read through the Lord's Prayer. This is the holy and errant word of God. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we do pray that you would be with us this evening. That this would not be a dry theological exercise tonight, but that we would reflect upon you, our Father in heaven. And that we would find that in new ways you're firing different things in our minds and our hearts that we haven't known or things that we haven't experienced in knowledge before you this evening. Maybe that you would press things home to us to a greater degree than we have known them before. That we would find that we are delighting in the truth that you are our Father in heaven. O minister to us tonight, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, in that last uh, sermon in the series of our Trinity, we looked at the simplicity of God, and you remember that God is one essence, three persons. We can make the mistake of thinking about our triune God as being three persons who come together to form one God, as if 
the Father and the Son and the Spirit are each a third of God, and as they come together, they make some kind of composite being that is God, and that would be wrong. Neither did the three persons emerge from this kind of one essence, this one thing that is God, this one being that is God, and then from that were derived three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, it is that each person of the Godhead is fully God. Each person is not part of God. Each person is fully God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Not a part of God, but God. And yet, neither are they three gods. There are not multiple gods. There are not, not multiple wills. There are not multiple glories. There are not multiple goodnesses. There is one God, not multiple minds or multiple powers. God is one simple being. As Francis Turretin said, and I quoted a couple of weeks ago, simplicity in respect to essence, but trinity in respect to persons. Simplicity in respect to essence, but trinity in respect to persons. There is distinction between the three persons. So there is distinction between the Father and the Son and the Father and the Spirit and between the Son and the Father and the Son and the Spirit and between the Spirit and the Son and the Spirit and the Father. But a distinction that does not undermine the one essence. And that is absolutely essential for you and I to understand if we're going to try and wrap our minds around it, we have to say there is distinction in the persons and yet not a distinction that somehow disrupts or does violence to the essence. He's triune. Each person is fully God. And each person, we can say, is identical with God. Not multiple gods, Another way of saying it is that each person in the triune Godhead is identical with God in all his fullness. And as we begin to think about that and we think about his essence, his, that he is one in being, then we have to start to look at these distinctions and say, okay, but we have distinct persons. And what does that mean that they are distinct persons? In one sense, I think we have to say, in a very real sense, that you and I, to understand the distinction of persons, the only way to do so is to first turn to the New Testament. It's revealed to us in the New Testament. Now, there are shadows of it in the Old Testament. So we may look at uh, the language in Genesis 1, where uh, it is a plural that is used. There will be some that will argue, well, that is a kind of foreshadowing of the fact that God is three persons. Let's say when Abraham is meeting with the three visitors, that this is a foreshadowing that the revelation that God is three persons. However, it's when we turn to the New Testament that we see, for example, in the baptism of Jesus, that the Father is speaking from above and that the Son is being baptized and then the Spirit is coming upon the Son to anoint Him 
in his baptism. It's in a passage like that or a passage like John 6 where Jesus is making it very clear that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. We know that God is triune primarily from the New Testament. And that makes sense. At least it does to me. Makes sense of what the scriptures as a whole say of our living God, that he would be revealed to us in the New Testament as triune. It's there that it comes to us in a kind of comprehensible manner. And it does so as the Son becomes flesh. And as the Son becomes flesh, he purchases our redemption, and then when he ascends back to the Father, he and the Father send the Spirit, as he says, into the world to apply that salvation which he has purchased for us. And that makes perfect sense. Because when we think about God as triune, we begin here. The Father begets the Son, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit is breathed out by the Father and the Son. Or another way, as it's been said in church history, is that the Father generates the Son, the Son is generated, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And so when we turn to the New Testament, this is the order of operation that we see in salvation. The Father sends the Son into the world. And the Son comes into the world. And then when the Son ascends back up to the Father, the Father and the Son send the Spirit out upon the world. And so very much in the accomplishment of our salvation, even in the application of our salvation, the applying it to our persons, you have a picture of how God has always been. Father begets, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so he's revealed in this comprehensible manner as the Son comes into the world. So to consider the three persons, we begin tonight with a New Testament text, Matthew 6, 1. It's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. You'll notice as I read through it that I highlighted the fact that he says Father multiple times, but he begins that way, doesn't he? He says, Our Father, who art in heaven. That's how he teaches us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. I want to note a few things about this passage. First, let us note that Jesus is teaching his disciples to address God as Father. This is not a, a mere analogy. It's not a, a mere title as if God is like a father. Rather, this is the proper name for the first person of the Godhead. We pray, Father. We, we don't open our prayers by saying, we pray to you who is like a father to us. We pray to the Father. That is his proper name, Father. Second, note that this proper name speaks of relationship. To explore this more as we go through it this evening, but this is not an abstract name. When Jesus teaches us to pray, it's not to the great being in the sky, it's not, oh, just judge above, it is not to the uncaused being, it's not to the unmoved mover that we pray, it's the Father. There's no abstraction here. It is Father. 
When mother is used of God in the Old Testament scriptures, it's always as a simile. It's presented as if God is a caring and nurturing being, like a mother is caring and nurturing of children. And so it's always as a kind of simile. But when God is spoken of as father, that's his name. It's Father God, his proper name. Third, note that Jesus calls him our Father. Our Father. This is not new for Jesus. He did this from the earliest of ages. You remember in Luke 2 when he is separated from his parents when they go into Jerusalem. And then when they find him, he will say, why didn't you know? How didn't you know? I would be in my father's house. He calls him father. You see it at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, just in the reverse, when he comes up out of the waters of baptism, the father speaks from heaven, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus will consistently and constantly throughout his earthly life, he will speak of God as his father. He will do so from the temple as a child to his high priestly prayer to the prayer of Gethsemane. He will do so when he's on the cross. It will be the words that he cries out, and in that cry, it will be to his Father. This is not new, though. God is Father throughout the Scriptures. I just want to give you a few references this evening. He's a Father to Israel. He says in Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. He's also a father, he says, to all those that fear him. Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The New Testament writers with apostolic authority will refer to God as father. 1 Corinthians 1, 3, grace to you and peace from God, our father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter will do the same in 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But most significantly is that Jesus is consistently and constantly calling God his Father. And he's teaching us to do the same. He says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 20, 17, when he says to Mary, when she is holding on to him. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to the, my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He teaches us to pray, our Father. I told you this before, but I'll say it again. The most important thought you will ever have most important thought you will ever have is the first thought that comes to your mind when I say this, God. And I think for the Christian, or I would contend that for the Christian, the first thing that should come to our mind is Father. And if it is Father that first comes to your mind, that shapes everything else about the Christian life. And it informs everything else that we understand about God for us. 
When Athanasius was combating Arius, the heretic, in the first centuries of the church, he made this point to Arius. Arius, he was pointing out, had corrupted the doctrine of God. And he said to Arius, you've corrupted the doctrine of God because you're starting in the wrong place. You're first considering God as creator. Now, isn't that interesting? Because that's where we want to go. But he says to him, Athanasius is saying, that's the wrong place to start. You don't start with God as creator, because to do that, you have to think abstractly about God. That is, if we begin with God as creator, then we have to first think of him as the uncaused being or the unoriginate being, but that's not how God is presented to us in the Scriptures. He is creator, but that makes our understanding of God dependent upon him creating and he existed long before he created. And how did he exist long before he created? He existed as the father of the son. Our understanding of God is to begin with how Jesus revealed him, and Jesus revealed him as father. When you begin to understand God as Father, we don't wander off into thinking purely philosophically of Him, but rather we understand Him to be relational. We begin to understand Him to be life-giving, a life-giving being. As Michael Reeves says, a modern-day theologian commenting upon this, he said, that is the sort of God we could love. As he says, the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that He is Father. He is the Father of the eternal begotten Son. Remember when we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, about the three persons, we said that what distinguishes the three persons, one from another, is their relation to one another. It's a relationship. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit eternally is breathed out by the Father and the Son. And so let's try and think about what this means. What does it mean that He has always been Father and that as the Father He beget the Son? What does that even mean? And we need to first be clear of what we mean as we talk about this. And I want to talk about it first uh, from the idea of perspective. So think with me here of perspective. There are many times that I think we think backwards when we're thinking about God. I most often see this uh, in our common language when we're talking about something like Ephesians 5, and we will talk about marriage, and we will talk about husband and wife, and that uh, husband and wife, we will often say, you know, that picture that Paul gives where it models the relationship between Christ and the church. We read that and we think marriage somehow reflects the relation between Christ and the church or that our marriages do. And it's the wrong order in thinking about Christ and the church. It's the wrong order that we often bring to that equation. 
We have in our minds that the relationship between Christ and the church reflects our marriages, when in reality our marriages reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. And we just kind of just kind of turn it around. And we do the same thing with God as Father or any of these thoughts that we often have about God. God is not like anything in creation, as we said a few weeks ago. He's not like anything in creation. He's on a different plane. You say, but we call him Father, and we have fathers in creation. Yes, but it is not that God is like fathers, but rather that fathers can be like him. And you get it wrong if you turn it the other way. As has been said, the effect bears likeness to the cause, not the cause from the effect. God is the cause, not the effect. The cause doesn't bear likeness to the effect. The effect bears likeness to the cause. And he's always the cause. After service some weeks, give you an illustration, it's some of my favorite weeks, uh, kids will come up to me and they will hand me a piece of paper and on that piece of paper, in pen or pencil, they will have sketched an image and that image will be there. It will be a slightly overweight, slightly overweight, goateed face with a headset on and balding head that is there on the sheet of paper. And if I held that up next to me, you wouldn't say, oh, Jason, you reflect the likeness of that picture. That's not what you would say. You would say, well, that's, that picture is a, a right reflection of, of you. It looks like you. That, that this is the effect. I'm the substance. We often turn it around. We are like God. God is not like us. And we often attempt to make God in our image rather than understanding that we are in his image. There was one church father who famously said that if horses made idols, they would all have hooves. And that is often true of us. We're just making God always kind of in our image to look like us. So we need to be careful here. Second, let's talk about how language like this works when we talk about God the Father God as Father. Theologians will use three different terms. There is univocal language, equivocal language, and then analogical language. Univocal language would say that when you and I are speaking about something, that the things are the same. There is a a one-to-one correspondence. So as we speak about this thing, so it is true of this thing. They, they are identical. And of course, that doesn't work with God, univocal language. When we speak about God being good and we speak about us being good or we speak about a dog or a cat being good, you know that uh, we're not talking about the same thing here. So we know when we speak about God being Father, we're not using language like that. 
We can also speak in equivocal language. And that would mean that the things are absolutely different. So we might use the same word, and yet it means completely different things. So I might say that, uh, that this glass of water, this water bottle is cool. And then I might say, you want to show up Friday night for John's jazz concert because it will be cool. And you say, well, that, those are... Those are two completely different things. Or to use the illustration of good, we might say, well, a, a dog or a cat is, is good. And by that, we mean that it's, it's obedient. And then I might say that my kids are good. And you go, oh, not the same thing. Different kind of thing we're talking about here. But it's not that. We know that there's some correspondence here. There, there's some similarity between God as Father and what we see in people as fathers. And so it's what Aquinas would often talk about. He would say that it is analogical language that we're using. That there is something that is true here. We, we see something in the effect that gives us some truth about the cause, and yet it's not identical to the cause. There's something there, though. Father is the Father of the only begotten Son. So what does that mean? What, what, what is it that is being communicated to us in saying that He is the Father of the Son? He is eternally the Father of the Son. Psalm 2.7, the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. What does that mean that the Father begot the Son? It cannot be that the Father created the Son, or that He produced the Son, or that He caused the Son. The Son is one with the Father. They are the same, as we quoted from the Catechism tonight. They are the same in essence. They are the same in glory. There was never a time that the Son was not, as Augustine used to argue. This is clear in Scripture. We don't have time to get into all that tonight. We'll do that when we get to the Son. It is what we would expect, I think, when we're thinking about father and son. What does it tell us when we see a father and a son? What does it tell us? It tells us that they are of the same essence. They're of the same essence. If you are in your backyard and all of a sudden one day you are mowing in your backyard and you see that a cherry tree has kind of erupted in your backyard, one of those wonderful Michigan cherry trees. And there is just 10 yards away a group of tomato plants. You would never look at those tomato plants and you would say, ah, same essence. I bet it came from there. You'd never say that. Because you know that they're different in essence. You know that a cherry tree begets a cherry tree. You know that a tomato plant begets a tomato plant. They're of the same substance. The Father, through generation, again, not that the Son never existed or ever was not, but He communicates His one essence, that same one essence to the Son. They're of the same substance. Again, not that the Son has a beginning, but rather that all that comes from the Father. Everything that the Son is, it, it flows from the Father eternally. 
They're the same. So that when Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, of the same substance. He's the fountainhead in this way. In this way, we can say that the Father has primacy, not that He is superior, but He is primary. He's the first person of the Godhead. And so, it is the Father who sends the Son. It is the Father who decrees that the Son would come into the world and save sinners. It is the Father who wills our being conformed to the image of the Son through the Spirit. He's the fountainhead. It flows from Him. Not in a temporal sense, not as if it is in time, but in an economic sense, that is, in the working. In the working, He is the fountainhead. He's the first person in this way, not in being, again, not in honor or glory, not in substance, but when we're speaking about relations, Relations between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Father is primary. Second, the Father speaks of relationship that is eternally life-giving and centered on love. He is eternally life-giving and centered on love. If God is eternally Father... If He is eternally Father, then He is eternally life-giving. He's not a giver of life that was turned on like the faucet in your bathroom at some point that gets turned on. No, He has always been life-giving. And because He has always been life-giving, He has always been love. As John says in 1 John 4, 7, 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and, God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. God is love. Where does that come from? Because He is a life-giving, eternal person. Again, Michael Reeves said, To be the Father, then, means to love to give life, to beget the Son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in His Son. There was never a time that He was not Father. And so there was never a time that He was not filled with love. There's never a time that He wasn't life-giving. St. Hilarius of the 4th and 5th centuries said it the same way back in the 3 and 400s. God can never be anything but love or anything but the Father. And he who loves does not envy. He who is Father is holy and entirely Father. The name admits of no compromise. No one can be partly Father and partly not. That is, this is God. He is Father. There's no abstractness here. He's always been a relational being. He's always been the Father of the Son. And that means He has always been life-giving and He's always been love. 
And when you begin to understand that, oh man, that will shape your entire Christian life. His Father. If we don't see God through the person of the Son, we have an impoverished view of God. And I would argue that if you don't first, first think of God as Father, you have an impoverished view of God. Three quick applications. First, let us always see God through the Son. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. You come to God through the Son, but you also see God rightly only as you see Him through the Son. And how do you see Him through the Son? You see Him as Father. There's relationship here. There's love here. Second, we should delight in our adoption as children of God delight in our adoption as children of God. You think of all, all the works that God did, all the things that, that He created, and you think of all of the things that He shaped and formed and all that He sustains, and yet it's us. It's us that He's chosen to reconcile to Himself, and it's us that He's chosen to bestow the name upon that is the name that is the second person of the triune God for all of eternities. That relationship, we are now called sons of the Father. That should blow every circuit in your head. He is the eternal Father of the eternal Son. And now you, He adopts into His family and He calls Son. There's that Psalm 8. It often goes through my mind. The psalmist is fascinating. I think it's something we've all experienced where he's outside at night and he's looking up at that night sky and you have all the stars that are in the sky. And you know, as you're looking at all the stars in the sky, your mind begins to think, oh my goodness, I am so incredibly small. I think I'm so important. All you have to do is go out and look at the night sky and all of a sudden you realize, ah, not so important. Very small. But then it immediately makes you run to the fact that if I am this small and if all of that exists and things that within some of those lights there are billions of stars and beyond that is a God that created all of that, you all of a sudden have this, this expansive view of God. That's what the psalmist is doing there in Psalm 8. He's looking up at the night sky, and he's having this expansive view of God as he's looking at the night sky. And then he says this, Oh, my God, why are you mindful of man? Mindful of me. It's absolutely astounding. God has a discriminating love. He loves us differently than He loves the rest of His creation. He loves us more than He loves the tree, and He loves even the lion, and even more than He loves angels. 
He has a discriminating load. They're more valuable to him, the greater object of his love. And therefore, we are to delight in this adoption and return a discriminating love to him. See, there are so many things I can love, and there are a lot of things I love. There are a lot of things in this room I love. But I'm to have a discriminating love. When I receive such discriminating love, he is to be the great object of them. Third, when we understand God as Father, our duty becomes delight. We're His children. We're not simply His creation. We're His children. When we think about God, we can start with how great He is. God's greatness amazes us, and it should, but His greatness in and of itself does little to draw hearts. It's the greatness of God that then is married to the loving kindness of God that powerfully allures the human heart. And this is grounds for delighting in Him. This great God is our loving Father. And oh man, that, that turns duty into absolute delight. You ask of me? All right because I've been shown such great love and you are, such wor- you are so worthy of such duty. We often look at others in sin and think if only they understood God's command and then we look at our own lives and we know we understand the commands. And the issue, if we search ourselves, we see that the issue is that we don't find enough delight in God. That's the real issue. Don't delight in him as father as we should. If God is our father, a loving father, then all becomes informed by this. Von Maastricht, the great 17th century reformed theologian, argued that God's love towards us is free. It is as our father, it's free, and it's uncoerced love that we receive as his children. He does not love us for something that we can return to him. He simply loves us with a free fatherly affection, and therefore Van Maastricht said we should seek in an analogous way to love him. We should be motivated to love him, not from the advantages we receive by doing so, but he's saying purely on account of who he is, and you can do that when you see him as father. He's given you free love, and you just want to return Turn love to him. Wonderful delight to serve such a God. I wonder when you think about God if that is the very first thought that you have, that he's Father. When Jesus thinks of God, it's the very first thought he has. You see it on his lips all the time, Father, Father, Father. When he taught us to pray, that's how he wanted us to approach God. This is what he wanted to dominate our minds, our Father who art in heaven. This great God whose name is to be hallowed, he's your Father. I wonder if you think of him like that. I wonder if that's what dominates your mind. If it does, oh man, duty turns into delight. Delight. 
love becomes discriminating. There's more and more joy in the Christian life. It begins to shape all kinds of things when you begin to see him first as father. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. You, the Father of the only begotten Son, eternally Father, thank you that you have forever been life-giving, that you have ever, forever been love. We're thankful that this was revealed to us in your Son, and that you've chosen to take such sinners as us and make us adopted children that can never look to you as our Father in heaven. Think that your greatness is married to such loving kindness, such life-givingness, and that you are our God for all of eternity. Ah, oh, help us to find more and more delight in this truth, to be motivated more and more by this truth. May it shape our lives to your glory and to your praise. In Christ's name, amen.